The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. This is Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by the spin-off and Halo Sport. Oh, welcome along, everyone. Uh, this is called Rugby Unwrapped, and it's a chance to discuss uh, where rugby's at, where rugby's going, and how it gets there. I'm Scotty Stevenson, joining me from New Zealand Rugby, Chris Lendrum, from Halo Sport, Simon Porter, TJ Pitanada, Hurricane and All Black, and uh, Head of New Zealand Rugby Players Association, Rob Nickel. Boys, let's just get straight into it. Uh, Chris, I want to start with you. For, for those who don't know, what is New Zealand Rugby? What is it as an organisation? What does it represent? Uh, thanks, Sumo. Well, we're, um, we're an incorporated society made up of members, essentially. We've got 26 provincial unions who hold voting rights. They're our members um, or our owners. Um, we have affiliates as well attached to that, like New Zealand Universities and the Rugby Foundation and so forth. Um, and we've got a, a key role to play um, in coordinating and promoting rugby in New Zealand. Our, our vision is to inspire and unify through rugby, um, lead, support, grow and promote our game. So constitutionally speaking, and, and this is directly lifted from the constitution, that the, the aim generally of New Zealand rugby is to support the amateur game at all levels. And, and I guess that's where... Uh, the tension lies in the current professional landscape. How does an organisation like New Zealand Rugby, and I'd love the thoughts of the whole panel on this, promote the professional game while still trying to live up to uh, its role constitutionally to do everything in its power to promote the amateur game? Well, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's clearly a balancing act, right? Like some of those constitutional documents are obviously written a very long time ago before anybody imagined uh, sport full stop in a professional era um, so for us uh, our position is we really need to fund the entire game through the earnings we make on the professional side and that makes the professional game incredibly important um, but I think we've retained a good sound connection through to the community game certainly and, and Rob and TJ can, can talk to this sumo um, the connection of players back into their club environments and the community is still really important it does look different, though, um, from what it did even even 20 or 30 years ago, and we just have to evolve with that. The professional game requires an awful lot of money, and as the annual report suggested, a lot of that money goes into paying players in the professional space. Rob, you run the Players Association, so you know the kind of money's involved. There, there are some people out there who think, OK, we've got this professional space uh, and that sucks up a lot of the income, which in turn is supposed to then somehow fund all of rugby. 
Is there a tension there and, and how much money is required to keep our professional game going, which in turn is supposed to promote the amateur game? Yeah, well, I guess on that on that previous point, I, I think it's crucial that we keep it together. Um, so, you know, from a professional player perspective, we're pretty proud of the fact that we're part of a professional industry that helps fund the development levels of the game. And it's a, it's a serious responsibility that we take and, and a bit of pride in it as well. And it does. Professional rugby in New Zealand does generate money that filters back into the various initiatives that New Zealand rugby and the provincial unions implement. So that, that's crucial. But um, professional rugby is a business and businesses require assets and that's how they generate their surpluses. Um, that's how they generate their revenue and their following in their community. And the players, the coaches, the high-performance personnel, the brands, the logos, the sponsors, they're all part of that package. And, um, you know, I think the number one thing is as long as New Zealand rugby has done what it's done for the last 100 or so years and stays aligned, and it's really clear on what it's trying to achieve, then we can all get around and put the structures in place to do it. The time we'll get in trouble is if we become disconnected and we'll go off in different paths, and that would be a real problem. The, the thing that we're pretty proud about, um, Sumo, is that we have stayed connected. We've got to evolve, uh, and that's partly what this conversation will be about, but most important thing is we keep working together. How does that work from your point of view, TJ? You're a professional rugby player. We know you. We see you with the Hurricanes. We've seen you in provincial rugby in the past. We see you with the All Blacks. What do you feel is your great connection to community rugby? Um, personally, I think my biggest connection is being at community rugby, being um, connected to the club and uh, being a part of it is probably the, the best thing that, that I think that I can give to, um, to my community rugby, especially um, there's different ways that we can um, do things via social media through playing the game at a very high level that do, does help um, the community game. Um, just, I, I guess, through like what Rob and what Lindo has been talking about, that if we do things really well on the professional level, it gives us the ability to then scale down into um, help on the community level. I think for players, what we take for granted is the impact that we can actually have with our time um, at, at the community level. If we... If we can give back with our time, I think that really does help um, at the community level too. Um, yeah, it's not a financial injection. It's not a way to give money to the club, but it, it does bring people to the club. I, I just know through times that I've been up to trainings, through times that I've been to games, um, the excitement that that brings to, to these, um, I guess, young kids who are the ones that are the, the future for us in the game. Like we, we often say in all walks of life, they're kids of the future and they genuinely are. Um, for the game of rugby as well. Um, so us being able to give our time um, when we can to, to our clubs. And there's a lot of us out there. There's a lot of footy players um, around the country doing really good things out on the field. And that time that we can give back to our clubs is, in my opinion, just as important as the, the financial side of things that we can give back through playing the game at a really high level and then being able to um, assist um, financially too. I look at the structure and, and I know we're dealing with a time of, of COVID-19, which has forced an awful lot of change very rapidly on the game and has adjusted things um, incredibly. But even before COVID, Chris, the professional game was running uh, ostensibly at a loss. It was a million dollars last year in terms of annual report. This year's annual report re represented a $7.4 million loss before we even get into the revenue holes that are potentially there for this coming year. Is the game sustainable in its current form? Because if you cannot make a surplus or at least break even, then is the model slightly broken? And was it broken even before uh, the COVID crisis? Mm. It's a really good question. Um, 
and the answer is complex. And at New Zealand rugby, we've actually been in a position that's a lot more fortunate than many other national unions um, uh, around the world. So we've um, we've had reserves that we've been able to dip into uh, during this crisis, and, and that has probably kept more lights on, more people in roles, and, and more things happening in rugby than than might otherwise be the case. Uh, more money in the pockets of players in the short term uh, as well. Is it sustainable? Um, the model's certainly tenuous. When you look at uh, how New Zealand rugby's revenue and expenditure is profiled over a number of years, you know we've been very reliant in this past five-year cycle on the windfall uh, from the Lions series in 2017. And that has funded losses um, uh, in, in, a, in other years during that period. But then again, uh, we're not here to make profit. We're here to reinvest everything we earn back in the game, back in the players, back in the community. Um, so our, our own financial management, I think, has been sound. Is it sustainable going forward? I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm sure one we're going to keep talking about uh, now, but I think it's an open question. Um, it's certainly, I can't sit here and say everything's great um, because it's not, but we've done a good job so far. Scotty, just, just on that, um, just on that, you know, I think it's important to note that when we say that New Zealand rugby's made losses, that's after they're distributing close to $30 million to provincial unions which is then invested back in the game. And it's also after funding a lot of activity that New Zealand rugby undertakes that's related to community and development levels of the game. And I think that's what a lot of people misunderstand. So if you did a profit and loss for professional rugby, it'll generate surpluses. There's no doubt about that. But the thing about most sports bodies, doesn't matter whether it's rugby, netball, hockey, whatever, is um, exactly what Chris said. They're incorporated societies. So if you give them an extra million dollars, they will look to how to invest that to grow the game. And if you look at the growth in a lot of areas of the game in the last five, ten years, particularly looking at the women's, looking at the sevens, you know, there has been investment in those areas and they are starting to bear fruit. The key moving forward, I think, is to make sure we don't cross over so that New Zealand rugby isn't doing the club's jobs, you know, the clubs in New Zealand rugby aren't doing the province's jobs. I think they've got to be a lot clearer on roles and responsibilities. And if we get that sorted out, I think there is, is even more efficiencies there. Yes, got it. Because I think um, <clears throat> someone picked up on it earlier as well, and people don't quite understand. I think how unique the New Zealand rugby ecosystem and the relationship is. If you look at England, they've got the England Rugby Union or the RFU have got the national team and the community game to worry about. The professional game is siloed off, run by different people. Same in France, um, and if and I think Chris made the point that New Zealand have actually done a lot better job than a lot of other unions, despite probably having a lot more areas of responsibility and areas that they have to contribute into. And I just don't think people probably understand that uniqueness of what they're trying to achieve and what they have to achieve and the, the number of people they have to please and mouths they have to feed. Um, and it does, it does create those tensions. Retention is one thing, and you make a good point about the RFU model, but let's bear in mind that a lot of these professional clubs in England are running at a massive loss. In fact, one club last year alone lost £4 million. I mean, that's a premiership club in a essentially a prestigious professional rugby competition. And bearing in mind also, they are getting handouts. They are being funded by the RFU, although that funding model has now changed to a variable model instead of a set fee. So... The RFU is still in many ways in England 
propping up the losses of private investment. And, and I look at our super rugby situation here. Again, there's money to be made, but it's not a huge amount. And, and so I, I still look at the tensions we've got. We want private equity in the game here in New Zealand. We've got some of that in various shapes and forms. But no one seems to be making a huge amount of revenue at any level, at any level, below our All Blacks level. And when we looked at the revenue hole this year that, that the chairman, Brent MP, has spoken about with New Zealand Rugby, that Mark Robinson, the CEO, has spoken about, the, the $120 million hole, potential hole in earnings, all seems to be related directly to the All Blacks. That's an awful lot of eggs to have in one basket, considering we've got this flow and this ecosystem in the game. Chris, is that part of the problem here that's so much of the funding in New Zealand rugby, of the revenue stream in New Zealand rugby is reliant upon your major international brand? Um, is that a problem? That's a good question. Look, I think the first point I'd make just to to build on what you've said, Sumo, is, you know, if you were, if you had money to invest, it'd be a nice situation to be in, but if you, let's just say you had money to invest and you walked into a fund manager anywhere in the world Nobody's going to tell you to invest in sport, right? You don't make money in sport. Very few people do. Um, and certainly in this market, in this part of the world, it's a struggle. Um, but people invest in sport for other reasons, because they want to give back to the community. Uh, in some cases, it's ego investment, um, particularly when you're looking at private owners um, and, and clubs and so forth. Um, so... As, as a starting point, you know, I don't think we should be measuring ourselves um, by the normal corporate or commercial measures in rugby. Um, sustainability is important. Massive profits is not important because any money we make, as we said, we're going to reinvest back in the game. That's what we're here for. It's our roles as guardians of the game. Um, yes, the All Blacks generate a large amount of revenue. Um, Super Rugby also generates a lot of revenue from a broadcast perspective, as indeed does Mitre 10 Cup. Um, we have been in a cycle where uh, an easy way to make more money uh, or comparatively easy way to make more money has been to play the All Blacks in more test matches and that clearly comes uh, with a range of conflicts around player welfare and, and other issues which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but in the end we've got one global brand a very unique and special brand that has significant cachet in the marketplace this is a team with a uh, a record that's unparalleled in professional sport and we can market that and and sell that that brand and um the players that uh, play through the jersey and hand it on all of those things are, are critical and it's a it's a great point of difference so i yes it's we're quite reliant on it, but I also don't think we should be ashamed of that fact. It's something very special. But it does in some way and has set the current model, hasn't it? Because everything must then flow into that all-black product, for want of a better term, which is the main driver of revenue. And, and, and Ports, you see this as, as an agent. We have seen the structure, the pathway of professionalism from the club game through to Super Rugby, through to the All Blacks, changed markedly over the last decade as more and more focus goes on to producing uh, the the asset, the All Black asset. Yeah, it does. Um, but, you know, and I think that question about is it a problem, it's actually 
The reason that I think that we've managed to uh, maintain our position as, you know, we're not world champions at the moment, but to have that sustained success has a lot to do with our model. And if you go around and you talk to teams overseas or unions or whatever overseas, you know, I think Nick Farr Jones the other day was saying, well, New Zealand's got to be more like Australia. We've actually got to have more sharing, more um, ability to come together to make decisions for the good of for the good of the game, which often does mean for the good of the All Blacks. We need our All Blacks to be firing on all cylinders so that they can be winning, so that they can keep driving in the revenue. I mean, it's is it the perfect model? No, but is it the most realistic model for a country of nearly five million that can keep punching above our weight on the world um, stage? I don't know if another model would actually work. I mean... I just think it's it's what we've got and it's our uniqueness, it's our one difference and whilst it creates all sort of problems, it actually creates the most sustainable form of success. I mean, what about you, TJ, mate, what do you think about that? How do you feel as an all-black and, and do you feel that pressure at the, the top end of the spectrum to have to, um, you know, added pressure in terms of across Super Rugby or your provincial union players, etc.? Um. Uh- Probably not that pressure, really. Like, I, I probably not thought um, too deep into into what we're going to dive into here, but just, like, by listening to the conversations and that, I, I don't feel um, that added pressure to, um, I, I guess, drive that brand and to, to help um, be, I, I guess, at the forefront for New Zealand rugby. It's um, it, that's something that I, I enjoy. I enjoy playing at a high level. I enjoy playing. Um, for the All Blacks and Super Rugby level and stuff like that, and just to your point, the um, on that model, like I don't, what would the, what would another model be at the moment? Like just just to bring, I guess, discussion points. Sumo, do you have an idea of what another model would look like? Um, at the moment, are you talking like do we promote three or four different teams at that same level and get mm. three or four different teams playing at that, um, trying to build the revenue that way? Like I just don't know, just for argument. So. No, I don't uh, look. It's not a. It's not that there's ostensibly, in my opinion, at least, a problem with the model. But I think it pays to look at what our model is. If if you look at the the professional workforce, and I, and I'll bring Robin on this in a second, just so we can gauge the size of the professional workforce in the game, which is the the driver of of key revenues, versus the participants in the game. So we've got, I think, uh, by virtue of the annual report this year, uh, Chris, and correct me if I'm wrong, around 140,000 people playing rugby. So so my my question is, what is our shop window in the sport here? Is the shop window 8am on a Saturday morning at your local sports club? Or is the shop window TJ Pedernata in All Blacks uniform playing a test match? Um, and, and can they both be uh, foundational in terms of where we want the game to go? Because they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. So I just don't know what we consider to be the most important cue and how we get from one Saturday morning, 8am, to Friday night, Saturday night, 7.30pm. Sumo, just um, a couple of things on that. Firstly, it starts on the 8 o'clock Saturday morning. It does, you know, the, the uniqueness about New Zealand rugby and the ability for the All Blacks and the All Black Sevens and Black Ferns and Maori All Blacks, those legacy teams, the Crusaders, you know, wonderful success at the Chiefs and, and all that side of things. For that to work, it's got to start somewhere and it, and it does start in amongst the community, the game is owned by the community in New Zealand. And that's that's one of its biggest strengths. From a professional player perspective, it's one of our biggest strengths as well. The ability for us to ensure our players remain socially connected, connected to the community, 
where rugby starts, what it means to the country. And I'm not talking about first 15s who run a program around performance and jump on TV and that. I'm talking about the essence that rugby does for people, what it does for the community, what it does for young people and their development, their character development, their sense of work ethic, perspective, all that kind of stuff. You know, that's what rugby is about in New Zealand. And, and then to be able to see a game that can do something like that within the community and other sports play that, a similar kind of role and then see the truly elite run out in the black jersey and do what they do on the, on the stage on behalf of their country and their family is pretty special. Um, you don't get that repeated around the world. And just a, a couple other things too, you know, like Super Rugby is successful. I, we, we do our first revenue sharing arrangement in 2005, I think it was. And um, we had 30 something percent of revenue and our player payment pool, the amount that's set aside from New Zealand Rugby, if you like, to pay the players was about 24 million. Um, this year it was 67 up until COVID just to give you a feel for the scope of the growth. Now, that that is still at 36%. So that means over that period of time, the other side has grown significantly. So, so the numbers aren't actually all bad. The other, other stat I'll chuck out there for you, you know, we've got around about just under 300 full-time professional rugby players in New Zealand. We have 420 playing professionally full-time overseas. So most of our current New Zealand rugby elite player workforce actually plays overseas at the moment. And yet, if you go back through the World Cups, there's not a lot of times that we've found ourselves short in terms of being able to stick a very, very strong squad. You know, we have retained players. Um, we have produced success at super and, and that kind of level right through to the, the international scale. So somewhere along the line, there's something really, really good about our model and our connection. I think the art is that we can't just sit still. We've got to keep evolving it. We can't always rest on, on the laurels. And we've got to make it more efficient and we've got to make it continue to work and, and, and sweat the good stuff for us. I guess your point at the start, um, Rob, about it starting at 8am on a, on a Saturday morning, I, I completely agree with. But um, I think Sumo's sort of talking about how do we get that 7.30pm test match or the 8am to the 7.30pm test match to be um, more in line. And I, I know it probably goes against um, our thoughts about player welfare and the amount of games we're playing, but I genuinely think that we should be either playing more club rugby um, at, when we can, but give it, or having more opportunities to. I think if we, uh, if I'm playing club rugby for North, for example, maybe once a season, or I'm at the game, whatever that looks like, that just brings more connection for that mm. eight-year-old kid who's turning up on Saturday morning at eight o'clock to then watch us on a Saturday night. It's again, it's not like a financial injection, but it's investing back into the game by just our time, us being there. You might not play we might not play eight game, oh, 80 minutes three times, uh, three times a year for Norse, but we might get 20 or 30 minutes one game a year, which I think is a lot more beneficial than, I don't know, standing up on TV or whatever and mentioning Norse in a, in a little interview or something like that. I don't know if that works, think but it, I think it's there. I think it's absolutely. I think it comes back to that point I made around, you know, we're all about personal development, growth and elite athletes, not just on the field, but off. One of the best ways you're going to grow is that connection, that social connection to your community and seeing what everyone and sharing what everyone's going through, you know, in their daily lives and stuff like that. And so, you know, it might not be about running out for Norths. It might be about, if you could, that would be brilliant. But just being able to connect um, mm. with your community, I think that's hugely valuable. Brings great perspective to professional athletes and, and just helps them in those as times to, I suppose, handle things and keep things in perspective. So I'm all, yeah. I'm all for that. I reckon, I reckon that's the, the key, basically. Yeah, I don't know exactly how it would work, but like post-Super Rugby, pre, 
might attend, like having a professionals and clubs weekend where all professionals are allowed to go back in, play for the club, like they, you have that release. It could be something. There will be, I guess, circumstances where players might have played 18 games for, um, I guess, the Hurricanes and then played three test matches and it might be a little bit different for that person. But for the vast majority, if it's pros and clubs day on one Saturday across the whole country, that's just another way to bring mm. everyone and all communities to their game because everyone knows that the pros are going to be playing in that game. You know, I um, think, I, I think it's engagement. Like for me, the, the word, and everyone sort of touched on it, but it's engagement. And it's how do we make sure that that kid that turns up at 8 o'clock um, becomes a lifelong lover of the game? That, that feels that real connection because at some point you're going to lose them as a player. That just naturally happens with age, whether you're a professional, whether you give up at age 18 or whatever, at some point you're going to lose them. But you have to make sure that they are so in love with the game and, and get that, 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 I don't know, that stuff that we're all referring to and everyone wants to talk about this because everyone's rugby people and it obviously is, is getting something going in them. But something in them, that they, they hold on to that so that they make sure that their children are there at 8 a.m. And, and the cycle. And that's where, and, and TJ, it's interesting you talk about the, the club game 2.30 on a Saturday. I think it's one of the big issues that we're, we've created without playing daytime rugby and daytime games is we've created this void where kids don't watch the game. My kids, six and eight, Poppy, she wants to be a black fern like her mum. That's what she wants to be. You ask her, what do you want to be a black fern? Does she want to watch a game of rugby? She'll watch the hucker but then she wants to go to bed, you know, like, and that we kind of have this generation of kids that watch the hucker and go to bed because it's too late or it's whatever. Whereas some of my best memories are sitting in the front room with the old man or, or my mates later on at 2.30 on a Saturday, you know, your club games shifted forward to 10.30 or 12. It made you feel like a kid again because you were playing early so that you could get home and watch the All Blacks, you know, clubs, club um Competitions all around the country changed because everyone came together on a Saturday afternoon, and and uh, yeah, it's just interesting. TJ talks about that wanting to get back and play in front of everyone at two thirty. This is this is the intrigue, though, isn't it? Because again, we go back to the model that that we have and the model that is is there to sustain the game. Because we talk a lot about community engagement, we talk a lot about lifelong fans, we talk a lot about children on the field at eight in the morning, and then we play the biggest games uh, at 7.30 at night, which is well past a lot of these kids' bedtime. So they've never understood what it's like to go to a game of footy in the afternoon. I, I know, and I'm sure you guys can all appreciate, why we play games at 7.30 at night from a broadcast point of view. We understand that it's prime time. We understand that it's more valuable to a broadcaster, and therefore they are prepared to pay more for that product if it is at that time of night. But there is something uh, that is naturally tense about the arrangement of having primetime sport out of range of the next generation coming through. And I, I think about the engagement over the last 15, 20 years with kids, and my uh, my kids are the same age as Simon's, ostensibly. It's just out of their zone. The game at the top level, at the elite level, is out of their zone. And Chris, I, I just don't know how much thinking goes into we need to make money to fund the game, but if people aren't watching the game that's funding the game, then they're not involved in the game. And it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. And, and I guess that's one of the things that you guys have to contend with in your office, in your organisation, on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yeah, that's right. You guys are all exactly right in your observations. Um, 
you know, in an ideal world, you'd do more to connect the professional and the community games every week. So there's, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, obviously, a lot of thought goes into it. Um, you know, our, our playing numbers, for example, um, have been reasonably static uh, over the last few years at a community level. They've held up better than some other sports, I should say, um, because there's a general move away from organised sport in our communities. Um, I think all you can say at the moment, Sumo, is we're at a critical juncture and perhaps this pandemic crisis brings us to the fore. Um, the thought was going in anyway, but here we are, the platform's burning. Um, you know, New Zealand Rugby, we've been very open about the revenue hit that we could take this year um, as a result of COVID. Uh, and this actually presents, uh, apart from the challenge, the obvious challenge, it presents a wonderful opportunity to get our key people together to talk about the challenges that the game has and how we might redesign it going forward. Rob's exactly right when he said earlier, it's about roles and responsibilities. Who does what and what do we need to do in the future? Because what we've done over the last 25 years, to be honest, has, has worked pretty well. It's worked very well from a high performance and a professional sense. And it's worked not too badly from a community sense, uh, perspective, but now we've got to, the game's changed and we've got to change with it. Sumo, just um, picking up on a couple of points there. One is, um, you know, I think this is probably, you know, the players themselves, we've, we've pushed for ages wanting to play in the afternoon uh, because the, the, I think when you talk to them, that's what they dream about, right? Running out on a sunny Saturday afternoon on an ice cream pitch. It, it's exactly what it's about. And the broadcast dollar was the thing that always swayed it. And time zones was another one, but broadcast dollar primarily. But if you ask the broadcasters now what they would have preferred, <laughs> given particularly with your former employer like Sky is, you know, and the, and, the, and the recognition, I think, more and more, particularly from the new management there, about engagement being the key. If they're engaged, they'll subscribe and they'll watch the sport. And if you're going to get better engagement by playing the All Blacks in the afternoon, you should probably do that. So I think there is a bit of a different platform. For years, we pushed trying to get afternoon rugby and couldn't get it. The other thing I think is quite important, and um, you know, New Zealand rugby did a nice piece of research into secondary school sport, uh, secondary schools rugby in particular, is it's not complicated. You know, the kids... Kids from 13 to 19, they want to be with their mates. They want to be having fun. They want a decent coach. They want to know that they're getting good coaching. It's not good enough that mum and dad are coaching anymore. They want a good coach. They want to, what they see on TV, they want to know they're getting access to. And they want to get a sense that they're improving on something. That's what that research told us. Like when they go along and they play, they're getting better at what they're doing. And if that's the reason they want to play the game, those reasons there, that's awesome. I, I think we've, we've missed the pitch. I think we've become too performance orientated in the way that we're pitching to kids. We're saying, and we have said, it's about making the first 15. It's about being a professional rugby player. It's not. You know, that shouldn't be the basis under which you play it. You asked TJ why he started playing. It wasn't to be an All Black first and foremost. It was because he loved the game and his family loved the game and he got pride and a sense of identity out of it. That, to me, is the guts. We need to re-pitch the game to our community for what it actually stands for and what it's about and celebrate that not being a first 15 champion or being a pro player. Yeah, I, and I agree with that, um, bro. The, we can, but I, what I would say that needs to follow that pitch is the actions behind that, and that's us being in the clubs. Because if we're going to say it's about the community, it's about being a part of something, it's about the enjoyment of it, but then the only interaction that those kids or those people that we're pitching to is seeing us on a professional level, it just contradicts that, that that whole pitch pretty much because it's like, yeah, you're saying all this this good thing, but the only time I get to see you 
as when you're in in a black jersey or in a hurricane jersey. So there's no um, there's no connection there to what we're going to say, you know. So if we're going to go in that angle, then I think we need to be um, in the clubs a little bit more. I, I pick up on that point, Robin, and I'll bring Simon in on this because yeah, yeah I, I agree with first fifteen rugby. It's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful part of our game. It always has been first fifteen rugby, regardless of it being televised or not. It, it brings out so much spirit and what I think really lies at the heart of this sport. Uh, that's become a little bastardised over recent seasons, and and I talked about a pathway earlier on. We used to have a pathway where you played for your club, you disappeared for a few years, you played for your school, you came back to your club, you went 19s, Colts, you made the seniors finally after getting a few scrapes and bruises, you got picked for your province, you got drafted to a super rugby team, and if you were good enough, you made the All Blacks. Now you play for a select group of first 15s, you are given a stipended contract by a super rugby franchise or a province, you are taken straight out of secondary school, put into development camps, you never experience senior club rugby, and you become a professional athlete at 18, 19 years of age. They have missed an entire step in the process. They have missed an entire level of engagement in our game. And we talk about representing their communities, their people as All Blacks. They never have. They've never played for the province of their birth in some cases. They've never played for their local club at a senior level. Now, how can we say that we're engaged across the board, across the range of the New Zealand rugby offering, when our kids are being plucked out of elite programs straight into professional contracts without ever having experienced the amateur ethos of senior rugby, of club rugby, of community rugby. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's kind of where I'm trying to come from. You know, if you if you look at the way we've got we've got it right at the higher end, at the high performance end in terms of retaining players and performances, but we've missed the point around the pitch at that community, that transitional end. And so you mentioned, oh, you get a contract at 18, 19, you go straight into the, the professional ranks. Very, very few players do, like a ridiculously small number. You could go down and watch one of those top first teams you're talking about, Kings, St. Kent's. You'll be lucky if one or two of those players end up having a decent super rugby career. One or two. And yet some of them are mitigating their studies in order to play this first 15 thing. You, you called it bastard advice, you know, say a little bit of commercialization of youth in a way you know actually bring it back to what it is because if the pathway is more connected to club if it is more around actually we don't need to rush it and you can extra you get an extra couple of years to meet you know mature in those communities mature in those clubs be more connected then you're going to have a more solid individual that you can rely on if they're good enough to make that professional professional space Mm -hmm. in that pressure environment um, they're going to have more to fall back on that will stand them up as professional athletes and as people, more importantly. So, mate, that's, um, you know, I think there's something in there. I think there's something in saying what is that juncture between school and actually arriving at a first 15 squad training? You know, what does that space look like? And I, I, I tend to personally agree. I think it should be more connected to the club. It should be more grounded and it should be a bit slower. Ports, you see this. You're the one representing players at, at all ages, and, and and it's got younger. In your time as a as a sports agent in the agency world, you know that it's got younger. You are signing athletes at a younger and younger age to representative contracts. Yep, um, it's probably has cooled off in the last year or two. There've been some changes around the contracting rules and the some rules around if you're in the under 20 program or below, you, you can't sign directly into a super rugby contract. Or sorry, you can't be part of that super rugby um, team, but you can still sign forward, etc. I think, um, I think there's, there's been 
more concentration for fewer athletes, and I and I, I think Rob's right. It is very few, and it's kind of like there's more money gone into less people because I'm pretty sure I haven't actually got the numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure provincial union academies numbers have dropped massively. <laughs> Port, Am I in? Port, 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 Ports has gone and Ports has gone down. We'll we'll come back to his point. Yeah, I'll jump in um, there. Then you spoke about the um, school rugby being on TV. I think that might be hurting the game. Like I know it's awesome for these kids who are getting to play on TV and it's it's really exciting. But it's getting kids to want to go to certain schools because those schools are the ones that get to go on TV more often, and that's part of the re- part of their drive to go there. Then those schools are ending up with three or four first 15 or like first, second, third, 15, maybe who are really good. And I'll just use Mm. Mana College, for example. So all of these kids are seeing these games on TV. They're like, man, I want to play on TV. So I'll go to these other schools who get to go on TV. So Mana College rugby gets hurt um, because these kids want to go there. But then those kids who are going there might only make third 15. So then their interest for the game goes, oh, well, I'm not making that team. So I don't want to play rugby anymore either. And then the kids at Mana College are like, well, we've got no one really to play with. So mm-hmm. we're not going to play. So you miss. So yeah, these like schools, there might be 10 or 20 schools who are going really, really good because of that model. But the whole model overall, like if you look at all of the, the game itself, I think it gets hurt more because you have more teams who aren't playing at a high level. So those kids lose more interest in the game. But then you have at those schools, you only have one team um, that's really playing at that top level. So all of those teams underneath the second, third, fifteens who would all play first fifteen for these other teams, they're getting hurt as well. You know, so it's yeah, I yeah, think it know, hurts the game in the long run. It's cool, but it hurts the game. Yeah, you know, the thing is, CJ, we again, college sport is a is a really interesting space, and there's been more and more work done in that space in terms of people who want it as a product. And and I, I just don't think school sport should be considered a product. It's not a product. It's part of your extramural experience of of high school of primary school and to commoditize school sport, I, I think we're, we're down a slippery slope. But the, the point you raise is also interesting to me because naturally if you're a gifted rugby player, you want to go and play for a good team, whether that's at club level, whether it's at super level, whether it's at school level. But what we never take into account for every opportunity that a good player gets to move schools to perhaps what is considered a, a better program, even a better school in some situations, the hit to morale of the school that that student leaves is massive. It is basically saying to everyone else in the student body that this school's not good enough and you'll never succeed here. And I I find that appalling personally. Uh, And sports shouldn't be driving that kind of morale shift because I think sports should be more responsible to the needs of school and should be more cognizant of what kids are at school for, which is first and foremost their education. Secondly, the, the extramural experience that sport or culture can give them. Yeah, I know what you mean, and I I agree. um, And what you also lose by putting all of those, because I I think there is a place for kids that want to be professional um, and like are really driven and stuff like that, and I think it's really good. But if you're taking all of those kids and putting them in one one team or one school, then the learnings that those kids – so I'll use Mount College, for example, again. If that kid stayed at Mount College and was driven and wanted to be a professional and did all that, they're actually teaching all of the other kids that they're going to training with like a system that could work in the future or like they're teaching them that professionalism, they're showing them that work ethic, that drive. But if you take that kid out of there and you put them in this program that has all of these kids that are the same, yeah, they probably get better quicker. 
but you lose all of that growth from all of those other kids who would have been around that person the whole time and seen how they worked and seen how they prepared and stuff like mm. that. So but, on a but, big scale, it hurts more. And that, and that goes back to Rob's point. Simon, I'll bring you back in a sec, mate. We just lost you for a touch there, but it goes back to Rob's point. Then if, if first team wasn't the be-all and end-all, if your performance at that level wasn't considered your one shot at glory, if you then had a couple of extra years to go to club rugby, find a club that suited you, then, then your school career ceases to matter so much in terms of the actual performance level. It does become about the, the court esprit, the experience with your friends. And then you go off to, to the club level and that's where you really hone your craft and then get your chance to move into the professional ranks. So, uh, Ports, I'll, I'll bring you back in. Uh, have we missed a little trick here in terms of that pathway and, and how have you seen the contracting model shift? Well, I, I just one pathway I think that dovetails and causes a lot of this is actually the coaching pathway because nowadays, I mean, the biggest budgets are at the schools and a lot of our coaches are cutting their teeth and earning the right to take up a step into a Mitre 10 Cup team or whatever through the coaching pathway. Like the whole club rugby as a, as a pathway for coaches has effectively disappeared. But there's no doubt that the, co- the, the, the player contracting model has changed uh, when the Super Rugby clubs were allowed to contract directly and fill their squad numbers uh, when we went away from the old school draft. And everyone talks about, you know, why doesn't rugby have a draft? Well, we used to have a draft. It wasn't like the NBA draft or the NFL draft, but we had a draft. And we went from that point and we went to the clubs and said, okay, you can look at succession, you can retain your talent, etc." That then comes back to this point about Chris and Rob about roles and responsibilities. Who role, whose role was it and whose responsibility was it to develop the player? Was it the provincial union or was it the super rugby club? And super rugby clubs all of a sudden said, well, we're actually going to put some money into that kid's future. We want to have a say in how he's developed and what he looks like. And, and um, they have kind of taken a lot of the control for developing the athlete away from a lot of the provincial unions. And, and that's kind of natural. You, as a, as a player or the player's parents or whatever, you want to talk to the biggest show in town. Oh, the Hurricanes are interested in me. Well, you know, the number of times you've had to explain and say, well, yep, the, the coaches from the Hurricanes or the, the high-performance manager have seen you and they like what they look, but you're not actually going to sign with the Hurricanes. You have to sign with Hawke's Bay, Manawatu or Wellington and then there's actually no guarantee that you'll kick through to the Hurricanes, oh, but I can go and spend some time training with them. Yep, you can spend some time training with them, but it's no guarantee. And if you don't make it in two or three years' time, they will go and sign somebody from Auckland to come and take your position. You know, there's, it, it is not really clear out there, I think, on whose responsibility it is to develop those players. Uh, in terms of it might be clear between the unions, and, and, and Chris can probably comment on this, but I think if you ask um, these young kids and their parents at uh, first 15 level, they will be thinking that it's the super rugby clubs who will be responsible for their development. Chris, your thoughts on that? Yeah, well... <laughs> I suppose the first thought you give is that no model's perfect, right? Every model has strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, I agree with, uh, with with what Ports has, has said. Um, I think uh, the Super Rugby model over 10 years has been actually really successful. When I think about the introduction of direct contracting by clubs 10 years ago, you know, we had two clubs who'd won Super Rugby titles 
and now we've got all five who've won Super Rugby titles over the last 10 years. And teams that are able to create their own destiny, um, their own history, um, the sense of association uh, and an attachment between player and club is enhanced. So all of those things have been really, really positive. Um, huge ticks. Um, but there has been a lack of clarity about responsibilities for development. Historically, it has been uh, the role of provincial unions to develop players. But over time, because these clubs have developed their own identity and they've they've reinvested their uh, the revenue that they've earned in facilities and uh, in in benefits for players, they have become these these hubs. And the best coaches, as a general rule, the best coaches have consolidated into those five clubs. So if you want to be developed the best, where do you go? You go to the place where the best coaches are. And so people's desire to get in and have association and training time uh, with those with those clubs and the club's desire in return to build their base and be ready for two to three years' time and use their contracting tools to, to support that has, has heightened. Um, and so this is part of the part of the platform that I talked about before, we're at a point where we need to reconsider some things. Um, what is the role of a provincial union? What is the role of a super rugby club? Uh, those are two pretty existential questions that are on the plates of people like Rob and myself right now. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, you know, if you strip it back, the role of a school, from my perspective as a parent of one person who's left school and two girls that's still there, I want, I want them to help them develop their character and, and acquire the ability to learn and knowledge. I, you know, I know sport plays a role in that, but that's what I want them to do. And I want the principals to own the role that sport plays in that school. And it's not about marketing or commercialisation. It's about growth of young people. Now look at the provinces. The provinces were initially formed to win a national provincial championship, pre-professionalism. They, that was their role. Um, the clubs came together and said, yeah, we want to compete in and beat another province, so let's get someone to organise that for us and go and do it. Then, you know, 30, 25, 40 years on, whatever we are, we've now got a super rugby competition, we've got clubs, and we've got provinces playing in a national provincial championship, which is coming under pressure. And yet the real, real ask that we have of the provinces all of a sudden is actually we want you to grow participation now. We want you to support club rugby, we want you to work closely with schools, and we want you to grow participation in the value of rugby to the community. So their roles have almost done a complete about turn. And so I think, you know, just picking up on what Chris has uh, just said and what we've been talking about, this conversation that needs to happen is what, is what is the primary role of provincial unions moving forward? Is it still to win a national provincial championship and run, run a professional rugby program? Or actually, are we going to ask them to do something that, in my mind, personally, is way greater sense of responsibility, which is participation, club rugby, community rugby, rugby standing in the community, drive that part to it. And just to put the elephant in the room, you know, should we still be trying to fund a professional MPC competition or should we be looking at trying to evolve past that, um, particularly given COVID and travel restrictions, et cetera, and redefine or move or evolve into what is the next reiteration of effectively a domestic professional competition in the future. And that, that's the... That's the big wrestle that's going on at the moment with everyone. Not a, it's not a scrap or anything. It's just that we know we've got to evolve. What is it that we're going to evolve into, and how do we define the roles and responsibilities within that? Because if you're a player who's really talented, you're 18 or 19 years of age, you do want to be part of a performance program where the people that are governing that program are part of. I.e., Scott Robinson is governing that program. He knows you're in it, and you know that if you work really hard, you've got a chance of making that team. 
And that's what the kids that are at that top level really want. At the moment, that's not super clear. And I, and I think so. This is, this is the guts of it, what we're talking about right now. We know provincial rugby's under real pressure from a competition point of view, Chris. I'm almost certain, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of conversations have already been had around what the future of any NPC currently called the Mitre 10 Cup looks like. I mean, just how sustainable from a contracting point of view is it to have uh, uh, this huge semi-professional uh, force of players out there and trying to fund this kind of competition on top of Super Rugby, where you have private investors who want to return first and foremost. There are tensions there between what the provinces see as their role, what the Super Rugby investors see as their potential return, and what New Zealand rugby can offer across the board. Yeah, and like anything, it depends where you start your analysis from, right? So from a performance and development perspective, although there are tensions around roles and responsibilities, you have to say that Provincial Union Rugby has been a big factor in driving the success of our Super Rugby clubs and then our All Blacks. So from a performance perspective, the model actually works okay and and remains the envy of, of many countries around the world. But commercially and financially, um, there is an issue. And I think... I always like to put it in the most simple terms, Sumo. We've got, um, if you counted our two sevens programs, we've got 21 professional work sites around New Zealand to make it sound really technical and boring, you know, but we've got 14 Mitre 10 Cup professional teams, semi-professional teams, five super rugby clubs, two sevens programs, and in fact also the Black Ferns, 22. Um, And for a country of not quite 5 million. And... When I look around and look at countries of a similar size, like Wales, for example, where there's a significant passion for rugby, and I look at how many professional entities they have for rugby, and it's just it's just markedly different. They have significantly less. And we do have to ask ourselves a question of, and I think it's a broader question than is Mitre 10 Cup sustainable? Because if you really wanted to, you could, you could find competition models that met your definition of sustainable, right? But it's the whole system. Is the whole system sustainable? Do we have the right number of professional hubs? Do we have the right number of academies? Those are the those are the harder questions. And then the competition structures, you just fit around. Once you've got your your strategy, um, then you look to your structures. Likewise, contracting model. You know, if we get the strategy right, get that alignment and roles and responsibilities sorted out, we can we can amend a contracting structure in two seconds to, to fit around a really solid strategy. And I think that's the evolution that needs to happen. It's, it's not about saying that Aucklanders or provincial unions shouldn't be involved in professional rugby or North Harbour or, or counties. It's not that at all. It's saying how do, how do the provincial unions, how do we better put them in a position to grow participation, community connection, club rugby, at the same time giving them a sense of their professional aspirations are fulfilled through whatever that competition is at the domestic professional scene. If it happens to be the Crusaders, then Canterbury and Tasman and Buller and West Coast feel that that is their team. Their professional aspirations are fulfilled through that brand and that entity. And in the meantime, they feel empowered to get on and drive participation in community. And and is the moment actually having to do a Mitre 10 Cup campaign, is that just muddling the waters? So that's the... You know, I'm not. I'm just putting it out there so people who are watching this can understand the discussion and debate that's going on, and it's not an easy one. It's off the back of a hundred years of history, and um, you know, it's an evolution that isn't going to happen in a month. But COVID has definitely brought it into the, the limelight, and the conversation was happening pre-COVID. It's been happening for a year or so. So, 
And to build on what Rob said, you know, one of our greatest strengths is the passion that people have in our rugby community for what they're doing right in front of them. And, and that's a big part of our competitive advantage. But it also means that, that people get passionate about their own patch. And there is, um, it's hard to contemplate when you've worked passionately uh, for a particular organisation that the role or responsibility of that organisation might change. That's hard for anybody in any industry and rugby people are no different. TJ, do you guys spend any time at all thinking about these issues as, as pros? <laughs> <laughs> um, nah, nah, the, the conversation doesn't, doesn't happen too much, but I think it needs to. Um, I know we, we often get left to play the game and there's, there's few, a few of us who... Um, have been in conversations um, similar to this, but like, I, I do think it needs to be spoken about more. We do have a, a responsibility, um, I, I don't know the right word here, but to, to make the whole system work, I, I think, Linda, you sort of spoke about that. Um, and as players, yeah, it, it is our responsibility, and I don't know exactly how that looks, um, but I think if we, if we can get on board with the Players Association, with the NZRU, and work together, and I know that that is the role of the RPA. Um, mm. it, it's it's only going to be good for us, and yeah, there might be sacrifices on I don't I don't know what scale or whatever. But if we're being genuine to the game of rugby and the, the sport we all love, maybe those sacrifices happen now or in the near future, so that in twenty years time, in thirty years time, the game that we love is still thriving and at the top of where it is, you know, or where where we want it to be. Scotty, just to, just to pick up on that, just um, to give you a sense, like TJ isn't on our board at the moment, but um, you know, Dane is on from the Hurricanes perspective. I can tell you now, when we have our board conversations, the, the overwhelming amount of time that's spent on secondary schools, rugby and rugby in the community is really significant. And actually, TJ, you'll remember when I came down and we had that, I think, 45 minutes um, mm. a few months ago. This was... This was part of that conversation and, and we brought all the Hurricanes leadership group in. But, you know, the, the players are really, really conscious at a governance level of this. We've got, I think, nine or uh, nine players on our on the board. David Kirk's our chairman um, and he challenges the space all the time. The players want to play a positive role in this. And, you know, TJ mentioned that word sacrifice. If it's a conscious decision, it's not a sacrifice. It's a decision you make, you know. Mm. And, and I think we have a, a maturing group of players here that care a hell of a lot about New Zealand and a hell of a lot about the game. And they will make the right decisions. They, they will push the right course. And I know our partnership with New Zealand rugby is, is very solid as well. So, look, I know we're going to get there. It's just not easy. Mm. Well, look, and, and in fairness, Robert, you've got to all work together here. When, when your revenues, when your player salaries are driven off 30-odd, 36% of, of player-generated revenues and there's – no revenue, then that 36% looks a lot smaller than it used to. So there, I guess it's beholden upon everyone to, to get in the mix. So I want to finish up, guys. I won't keep you much longer, but we wanted to have a conversation about where the game's at. And as always, we traverse a lot of ground in conversations like this. But as a sort of a phrase from all of you to finish uh, this episode today of Rugby Unwrapped, Lindo, I'll come to you first. New Zealand rugby has admitted it's under enormous pressure, as are rugby unions around the world. You mentioned before you've, you've had cash reserves, but they're not limitless. Uh, you need to find a way to generate revenue again. You need to find a way to be, I think I can say this, more powerful in your own backyard uh, after the world rugby vote. And 
bringing everyone together regionally. Where, where would you say right now your organisation is at and, and how strong is it prepared to be and the changes that need to be made? Well, uh, you recognise what our role is and you go right back to that start where we're owned by members and we're here for the good of the game. So uh, we have the capability to make decisions and to lead. Um, we can't necessarily force everything. That's, that's not our role. Right at the minute, uh, life is challenging, right? Every day we wake up and it's about survival over the next uh, short time. But there is a huge amount of optimism in our organisation and across rugby about how we can begin to thrive again. And I know personally, um, I'm strongly of the view that we can come out of this crisis, Sumo, even stronger than we went into it, stronger from a retention perspective, stronger from a community perspective. Um, And we just have to take the opportunities that are in front of us. So you sum all of that up and say, this is a hugely critical juncture for rugby um, and we just have to look at that constructively and optimistically. We're great at relationships in New Zealand. We're small. We talk to each other all the time, just like today. Um, and we've got to keep doing that to get to the solutions. Ports, you've watched the, the player market um, undergo quite the shock. So from an agency point of view, from a player agent point of view, where do you see the game right now and your role within it? Well, I mean, I think it... We can't miss this opportunity. Um, I think there's a real opportunity to try to align calendars, to try to to align the interests of clubs, of unions, of players, of, of everyone together. And um, I think I read something the other day, John Key said, don't waste a crisis. Um, and I guess it's let's not waste this opportunity. Um, let's let's really try to work together. I know it's happening, you know. As Lendo said, you know these conversations happen all the time, and we've got some really good people at the top of the tables who are who are talking to people and who are influencing. And you know, New Zealand rugby is massively respected, and the Players Association is a very well respected body around the world, and it, and it does drive a lot of change and thinking. So, you know, I'm really confident that, as Lendo says, we'll come out of it in a better place. But let's just make sure we. We, and as TJ said, we set it up for the next 30 years. Rob, your final thoughts? Yeah, mate, um, you know, it was more than conversations <laughs> pre-COVID. It was all happening. Uh, the, these things were on the table, and, and from a player's perspective, we were looking to really drive this conversation. Uh, COVID has absolutely put the foot to the floor. Um, the analogy we're using in the conversations with players is in two years' time, we want to be able to look back and think, Okay, that was that was a real tough time, but man, we we made the most of every opportunity when it came along. We kept our head up, we kept our eyes open, we had the right conversations, and when we needed to make the choices, we made really good decisions. And so that's that's driving a lot of our our attitudes at the moment. Um, we can kind of see where things might end up in a, in a year's time or two years' time, what have you. But we don't want to miss what we need to do right now, and that means uh, making the right decisions to get the game back on the field safely, get things rolling again. Um, but don't lose sight of the need to evolve. And that's uh, that's very much where we're at. I think we're linking in with all the Australian, four or five of the top Australian players tomorrow. I think TJ is going to jump on that call with uh, another six or seven of our guys. So we're talking to Australia. We've got Pacific Islands involved in that conversation as well. Um, so from a player's perspective, not just within New Zealand, but certainly within Australasia Pacific, we're organised and we're ready and we've got a lot of energy um, to put into this conversation to get the right outcome, for sure. <laughs> So you'll be champing at the bit to go there and uh, and steal a ruck turnover or something. But uh, in the meantime, mate, look, what what role do you see for yourself 
and, and for your peers and, and helping New Zealand rugby get from where it finds itself to, to where it needs to go? Yeah, I think as as players, we're at a – well, as a whole organisation, really. The, the time we're at now, it's a critical time, and I think we will be judged on this um, in the future. People will look back at this time um, – and be like, man, how did the how did the players react here? How did the whole organisation react here? And what did we do to get our game into a position um, to to be better and to to come out of this pandemic in a better place? And for us as players, um, it, it's about being open to to different conversations. It's about being open to um, different and the, I'll use the word sacrifice, but it's being open to different sacrifices. Whether that is um, I don't know financial sacrifice or sacrifice in terms of our time away from home or time. Into, into different things, um, playing more games um, throughout the year, throughout this year or whatever. But it's our really, it, it's our um, ability to be positive uh, in the face of that as well. That we're going we're gonna to come up with challenges. There are going to be challenges thrown at us. There's going to be challenges um, that we might not see right now. Um, but if we're open to those challenges and our mindset going into them, is about the benefit that it's going to have for our game going forward. Um, and we might not reap those benefits. I might be retired by the time that it comes back around and those benefits, people are bearing fruit to them. But that's okay because it's not about me getting better. It's not uh, me getting more out of the situation. It's about the game getting more out of the situation so that it can flourish for, for many years to come. And that's what I think our mindset should be into it, that we're in a critical time, that our actions now will define the future of the game. Oh, boys, it's been a, a great chat. Thank you very much for joining us, Rugby Unwrapped. Chris Landrum from New Zealand Rugby, Rob Nickel from the New Zealand Rugby Players Association, Simon Porter from Halo Sport, and TJ Pedernata. Cheers, guys. And that was Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by the spin off and Halo Sport. Rugby Unwrapped was produced by Maddie Walker, Eddie Fifield, Amber Easby, Duncan Greve, Scotty Stevenson, and Andrew McDowell. This episode of Rugby Unwrapped was made possible by the support of the Spinoff members. If you'd like to support our work, donate today at thespinoff.co.nz slash members. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.